Good morning. How you doing? Okay. Uh, so uh, my guilty pleasure is American Idol, right? Um, anybody else? Right. Come on, man. You guys be coming around. It's okay to admit such weaknesses and such faults. Any, any, um, in all seriousness, anybody else watch American Idol? I'm going to say, oh, God. All right. Uh, why is American Idol such a, you know, such a, a powerful force in our culture besides, I guess, our appreciation for bad music? Um, I, I think it's, it's, it's such a force in our culture for, for, for this reason. Um, I think we just love seeing a train wreck, don't we? I think there's something about us, it's, you know, it's the sin nature in us that loves seeing someone on national television just lose it, Right? It's the same reason why when we're driving on highway and there's a major accident, what do we all do? We slow down and we look, you know. It's, it's pretty, pretty bad, actually. Um, I think here's another reason why I think American Idol is such a powerful cultural force in our, in our world today. Uh, one of my favorite movies is Chariots of Fire. Anybody else? Chariots of Fire. There are two lines in there that literally is sort of like, I mean, it could preach every day, every week for the rest of Abrams is the, is the other main character, and of course Eric Little is the, is the, is the sort of the hero of, of, of the movie. Both runners, and the whole thing is culminating towards this Olympics. Abrams is not a Christian, he's not a believer. And, and right before the race, he has this conversation with his trainer, and he says the most profound words, I think, that captures the angst of our culture, you, me, and Today, he's before the race, and he says to his trainer, I have 10 seconds to justify my existence. I have 10 seconds to justify my existence, is what he says. American Idol, I have a minute and a half to justify my existence. This man has 10 seconds. This race is it. As a runner, he's it. That's his identity. That's the core of who he is. And so when he fails, if he fails, what's left? He has found his entire justification for his life in the fact that he is good at running. He's good at something. And, and when that's gone, what's left? Eric Little, on the other hand, says the other most profound line in the movie, which is he's talking to his sister. And he says, God made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. That's a man who's free. That is a man who is free to live his life. See, here's the thing, guys. Okay, by the way, this has nothing to do with today's sermon, right? I just wanted to share this with you. The reality is, reality, you're all paying attention like, whoa, where's this going? It's not going anywhere. It's going to end like the next minute. Okay, we're going on to Book of Acts. Here's, here's why I bring this up. I bring this up because... In this room today, there is a dividing line. There are those of you, Christian and not, who is saying from the depths of your soul, I have this to justify my existence. I'm funny, that justify my existence. I'm pretty, that justify my existence. I'm successful, I have a career, I'm smart, I'm moral, I am whatever to justify my existence. And your life, I don't even need to know you, your life will be one of constant anxiety, insecurity. Why? When you're not that, what are you? What's left? That's why you're discouraged today. That's why you're walking in, you're worn out today. This isn't all that deep, people. It's really not. If you have something that's saying, that justify my existence, 
Your life will be one of constant anxiety, worry, insecurity, bitterness, anger, da-da-da. And then there's the rest of us, hopefully, that are saying, Christ has already justified my existence, amen? So everything else is icing on the cake. Take it or leave it, you know? You don't think I'm a very good singer? That's cool. You know, I think I'm pretty good, but okay. I can walk off with confidence. It's okay. Well, you don't like me? We can't be in this relationship? That's okay. This relationship didn't define me anyway. Try that next time, you know? (laughs) See what they say. You didn't define me anyway, you know? Be like, well, I don't know what to do with that. (laughs) What do I do with that? You You guys hearing what I'm saying? Listen, this is what ails us. This is what ails us. Fundamentally, at the core of who we are, we are saying from the depths of our soul, that justifies me. And if that is anything other than Christ. Okay, so let's get to the real business of today's text, shall we? Acts chapter 10. Oh, I'm sorry, Acts chapter 6. Chapter 10. Some of you are like, whoa, we're in chapter 10. right? No, we're in Acts chapter 6. You know, I had somebody come into my office this week and say, you know, Peter, at the rate that you're going, a friend and I, like this is mathematical calculation, and we figure we're going to be done with Acts in two years and four months. I was like, how do you even know that? Like, how do, you have no idea what I'm going to do, you know? You, you don't know me. Like, what, what, what's that all about? You know, anyway. We're going to cover uh, seven, eight verses today, okay? So uh, turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 6. We'll read this together. By the way, if you've never been to our church, this is kind of how the sermon moment goes, you know. As you could already tell, it's not very, um, I don't know, it's not very uh, reverential in our church. I had somebody come up to me after the first service and said, I can't swear, so I'm going to substitute the word. Say, you know, you made me feel like crap, but the other, you know. You made me feel like, you made me feel like crap today. To which I always go, like, a good way or a bad, you know. And she said, she's like, in a really good way. I just feel like, you know, so that's what's coming, y'all, okay? That's so. <laughs> hey, that little two, three minutes up front, that kind of made someone feel like crap too, right? in a good way, right? Acts chapter 6, verse 1. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Grecian Jews among them complained against their Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the 12 gathered all the disciples together and said, hey, it wouldn't be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. So, brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of this spirit and full of wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. So this proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So, I love that, so the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Stephen, a man full of grace and power, did great wonders and miraculous signs among the people. Uh, Let me read you guys a quote from a church historian, okay? who in describing Christianity as a movement said this. He said, never in so short a time has any other religious faith, or for that matter, any other set of ideas, religious, political, or economic, without the aid of physical force or social or cultural prestige, ever achieved so commanding a position in such an important culture. And what he's saying is this, because this is what we're talking about, Book of Acts. He's saying, 
The book of Acts chronicles a movement of God's people who didn't use force, who didn't use military might, who didn't use cultural sort of elitism and prestige. And yet they were not just able to convert people, they changed their entire culture, changed the entire culture. So that a movement that began with about 12 people within 300 years had overturned the most powerful empire known to man at that time. Book of Acts is a story of how how this movement began, you see, okay? That's what the book of Acts is about. It's about this movement. Um, And and what we see in Acts chapter 6, when we come to this passage, we're picking up on Acts 2 and Acts 4, is that that the early disciples, early followers of Jesus, shared all of their possessions. They shared everything that they had. And the reason why they shared everything they had was because there was this corporate sense and identity of them as family, family. Families back then shared all their resources, and they had this corporate identity of, you know, we're, we're the family of God, and so how do we live as a family? We share our resources. No big deal. Now, check this out. So this isn't anything in the New, or New Testament and kind of, it, it's, it's continuity of the Old Testament, right? God appears to a guy named Abraham, and he says what? He says, Abraham, I'm going to bless your family, and as a result of your family being blessed, all the nations of will be blessed, all the families. So God eventually comes around, you know, much a little later, uh, and he, he picks Abraham's grandson. Anybody remember his grandson, Sunday school kids? Jacob, right? Jacob. And he picks Jacob's family then to begin sort of the formation of God's people. And Jacob has how many kids? He has 12 kids, the 12 sons who become the 12 tribes of Israel, right? And it's that family that essentially becomes God's people, the nation of Israel. Now, Old Testament kind of comes to a close. Of course, and the New Testament comes around. How many disciples does Jesus pick? 12, and it was random, you know, Jesus just didn't like odd numbers, 11, no, 13, no, 12, nice, even, no, why did Jesus choose 12? Because continuity of the Old Testament, family of God, Jesus picks 12 disciples to say, you are the next movement of fulfilling God's promise, family. Now, check this out, so, opening of Acts, there's 11 disciples, why? Some guy, Judas, you know. Anyway, he's gone. So, so there's 11 disciples. What do the disciples do? Remember Acts chapter 1? They said, we need to find somebody that would round this out. Why? Again, disciples didn't like odd numbers, 11. No. What do they do? We need 12 because it's a continuation of this promised Old Testament that God would use this family. So people in the New Testament, early disciples, had this corporate sense of we're the family of God. Now, do families struggle with issues? Oh, so you all come from perfect families, huh? Families have issues. Well, this family would be no exception. This family would be first time faced with some deep, serious issues within the family they would have to deal with. What was that? Look at verse 1. So, uh, those days when the number of disciples was increasing, by the way, if you're keeping count, this is the fifth account, Fifth account by Luke, fifth report of how many people there are in the early church. And by now, if you do math, you know, the book of Acts, there's probably about 20 to 25,000 believers. It's a big church. It's a mega church. You know, we, we sort of rail on mega churches. Well, you're looking at a mega church. I'm not saying they're good or bad. It's a mega church. It's a big church, 25,000 people with lots of issues. Verse goes on. The Grecian Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. In the, in the Greek, the word distribution of food literally says the daily diakonia. Greek word diakonia. We get an English word from that word diakonia. Do we know what English word we get from that? We get the English word 
Deacon. Deacon. That's, that's, we get the English word deacon. Now, I have some churches, some pastors, you know, they go to this passage and go, it's this long thing about deacons and theology of deaconship and why we need deacons. That's not what this passage is about. The diaconia literally meant practical service, waiting on tables, right? And what Luke is trying to say is this. This church didn't just proclaim God, the God, God's word in the gospel. This church lived it. This church embodied it. This church did something about it. There is no more critical time than today for the church in America to live this balance. Amen? Amen? Because the Bible says the church is the body of Christ, right? The body of Christ, all the parts. You know what the church looks like? The church in America looks like right now? It's just one big mouth. It's just one big mouth. There are no hands, there are no feet that have been cut off. It's just one big mouth just yapping, yapping, yapping. And the world around us, this culture says, shut the heck up. It does. It, it wants to say, where are your hands? Where are your feet? Where's the rest of your body? You know, like the early church? Because they just proclaim it in, 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 in word. They lived it out in deed. They actually help people. They care for the poor. They care for the marginalized, Christian or not. And that became a powerful witness. That's one of the reasons why people believed. Because the, the apostles didn't just proclaim and preach the resurrection of Christ. They actually showed it displayed it, lived it out. How are you doing? How am I doing? How are we doing as a church? Do we have this balance of ministry in word and ministry in deed? Or are we just a big mouth? You know what I mean? Can you imagine if it was just a big mouth? That's a freak of nature is what that is. And guess what, folks? In case you didn't know, People in America think the church in America is a freak of nature. Isn't it about time we reattach the limbs to this body? Amen? Isn't it about time we reattach the limbs for crying out loud so that people will see the hands and the feet? People will see those around us that are broken and marginalized, being cared for. Because that's what the gospel is. It's holistic. It's both and. All right. I'm done with my preaching about that in my soapbox. Okay. Um, so what was the issue here that the problem uh, that the early church was facing? Well, the problem was over the treatment of widows in the early church. And we're going to talk about this in a minute. And the problem uh, or the treatment of the widows, you guys, was that these were widows who weren't differentiated by, now listen, you got to listen carefully. They were widows who weren't differentiated by racial differences. See, some people thought they were, you know, racial, like they were Jew and the other were not. No, these were all Jewish folks racially. Their difference was language and culture. Why? Well, there were two groups in the early church. First of all, there were the Hebraic Jews, otherwise known as the Hebrews. Everybody say Hebrews with me. Ready? Hebrews. Who were the Hebrews? Here, here's, here's where the Hebrews were. The Hebrews were the Jewish folks who remained in Jerusalem, Palestine, and remained in that area. So here's what characteristic attributes they had. Number one, they spoke Aramaic as a language, very close to Hebrew. They spoke Aramaic as their language. We're very proud of it. Secondly, they read their Old Testament in Hebrew. Okay? They read their Old Testament in Hebrew. And third, they worshiped in the temple in Jerusalem, not in synagogues. And I'll get to that in a moment when we talk about the Grecian Jews. So the Hebraic Jews were culturally very Jewish people, spoke the language, so on and so forth. Who were the Grecian Jews? The Grecian Jews were part of a group of people called, uh, they call this the, 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 the people of dispersion or diaspora. And literally, the Grecian Jews were Jewish folks who had immigrated from Jerusalem and Palestine to other parts of the world. 
So here's what characterized them. Even though they were racially Jewish, guess what language they spoke? They spoke Greek, which was the common language at that time. Okay? They read their Old Testament, not in Hebrew, like a good Jewish man or woman would do, but they read it in Greek. The Greek version of the Old Testament, which is called the Septuagint, right? So they read it in Greek. And third, and pretty important, they didn't worship in the temple. They couldn't because they can track back to Jerusalem to worship in the temple. So they built these synagogues. Matter of fact, there were so many Grecian Jews in Jerusalem, but by this time, some scholars said there were up to 850 synagogues in the city of Jerusalem. So you could already see, racially the same, they're worshiping kind of in different places, speaking different language. Result? Potential for conflict. Now, what's happening in the church, listen, you guys, is this. Even though they were all racially the same, here's what was happening. The original disciples, Hebraic Jews, who were charged with Jesus to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, including Jerusalem and Samaria, were having a hard time relating, <laughs> relating to people who were racially the same as them just spoke different language and were of different culture. If you can't even get along with people who are racially the same as you and just speak a different language and culture, how the heck are you going to reach out to the despised Samaritans? And then the Gentiles, forget about it. I shared this this morning and the inside of this that I wanted to share with you guys because here's one insight that we need to wrestle with. What they're wrestling with is what you and I wrestle with today, which is what? When you get joined to the family of God, this family, it's both exhilarating and frustrating as heck. Why? It's exhilarating because you get related all of a sudden to family of God to people that are nothing like you. And that's awesome. Some, for some of us, this family actually has been the healing for our immediate family. This family and people that you didn't know have been the very people that loved you unconditionally, that has given you a bigger perspective of God in the kingdom. This church family, the family of God, means everything to you. And when I think about the church, when I talk about the family of God, you have nothing but good things. And then the rest of us who recognize that becoming a family of God, all of a sudden, you, you get automatically related to people that are nothing like you. And people that are sitting next to you, behind you, in front of you, are people that, let's be real, you would not normally choose to be your friend had it been your choice, Right? And then all of a sudden, here's what happens. This family of God, Heavenly Father comes and says, you know what? If you want to be a part of this family, you get relatives. You get brothers. You get sisters. And just as it's ludicrous for a child to go to a father and say, I like you, but I don't like them. So can you do something about them? God says, if you want to be rightly related to me, you got to be rightly related to each other. You get both. Why is this important? Let me tell you why it's important. We talk about missional living and being witnessed as a family of God, the church, the body of Christ, right? And we talk about how we need to live our lives in such a radically different way that the world looks at it and says, wow, takes notice of our behavior, how we do life, so on and so forth. Listen, what makes us different is not that we don't fight. What makes us different is not that we don't argue. What makes us different is not that we don't offend each other. What makes us different is not that we're sometimes incentive each other. What makes us different as Christians is not that we do those things. What makes us different is that when we do fight, when we do argue, when we do have differences, how do we respond to that? That's what makes us different. If you're not a Christian in here, you need to hear this. We're just as jacked up, if not more, than you. 
Christians don't mean that we behave so well, we're so godly sanctified that we don't. We get into all this mess. And so what makes us different? It's not that we're better. It's not that we're... What makes us different is how do you go about it when you need to forgive someone? Do you? Do you? What makes us different is that we pursue reconciliation and not just sit indifferently. What makes us different? Not that we don't fight, not that we don't argue, not that we don't have differences. What makes us different is that you extend grace to someone because Jesus has extended grace to you. Are you tracking with me this morning? What makes us different as a body is not that when we do life together and these issues arise to the surface, that we go about extending mercy. Mercy, we treat the person not as they deserve. We treat them, in other words, they don't deserve forgiveness, but I'm going to give it to them. Why? Because we have been recipient of the mercy of Christ. Come on, church. So let me be even more specific. There are some people in here, you need to forgive somebody. You need to forgive somebody. You know it. And you're holding on to this grudge. The whole premise of Christianity is that somebody, Jesus, God, has extended forgiveness to you and he calls us to do the same. He calls us to do the same. (laughs) Is this too hard? I told you. This is the reason why somebody came up and said, you made me feel like it today. Some of you that are unwilling to forgive and do this reconciliation, look, look, you're not just hurting your witness, you're hurting yourself. Your heart is getting bitter. Your heart is getting hardened. So I love about this early church is, is, is that, you know, and I love the fact that Luke writes it like this, you know, all the mess and all that. He puts it in there. He doesn't just gloss over. He says, no, there was some major stuff brewing. How do we deal with it? Look, being a part of family means that there will be inevitable conflict. Being a part, isn't that what families are? Isn't that what families do? But how you respond, the watching world sees. How we respond, the watching world sees. Okay? All right, well, Let's get into then what, what, what the primary issue was. Um, this whole issue with widows, how did it come about? First of all, if you're reading this passage, first time I ever read it, I'm like, why are they stinking so many widows, man? I mean, it must have been an enormous, enormous uh, population and, and that, that must have caused this, out of 25,000, caused this, caused this deal. And, and here's, here, here's what was happening in that culture. Let me just explain it briefly and we'll move on. The reason why there's so many widows in this church, widows in the early church that they deal with is because a lot of the Jews, a lot of the Jews who had moved out, diaspora, moved out of Jerusalem other places, later in their years, you know what they did? They decided to come back to Jerusalem and sort of retire in Jerusalem, if you will, Okay? I just thought of this. So Jerusalem was like the Miami beach. Like of, uh, if you don't get that, I've been to like Miami twice, right? The first time I went to Miami, we're driving around, and I'm seeing like Jewish folks, like Orthodox Jews with their full on, like in full on gear. It's like 90 degree weather, walking around, like make may goose of them. I'm like, do-do-do-do. I'm like, where am I, you know? So I turned to somebody and said, what's going on? And he said, you know what? There's a major Jewish population actually that retires. Do you know what y'all know that? That's part of what was happening in Jerusalem, all these folks. And they were retiring in the first century for two reasons. Number one, some of us religious, they thought that Jesus 
not Jesus. They thought that the Messiah would eventually come and arrive in Jerusalem, right? So they wanted to be there in case the Messiah showed up. Second reason. Same reason why my parents, when I talk to my parents, my friends are first generation Koreans, they want to be buried in Korea. Does anybody else have parents like they want to be buried in Korea. They want to go back and be buried in Korea. I said, why? And they said, because we want to be buried with our people. There's longing to go back to your roots and be buried. So that's what's happening. These large numbers of folks in their later retirement years were moving back to Jerusalem and settling there. Now, here's the issue, though. When a Grecian widow lost her husband, she was in a much greater need than a Hebraic widow. Here's the reason why. Number one. They would have been much larger in population at that time because they would have been much, much, much more, much long, further along in their years, if you will. They were still young, young Jewish widows who had their husbands, lost their husbands in early age, and they would have been part of the church. But most of the Grecian Jews, widows, were people who had already retired, and so age-wise, they were much older. Secondly, here's another issue. When they became Christian, when they became, joined this movement of Jesus, Two things would have happened. Number one, a lot of times their family cut ties with them and said, hey, you know what? Um, you joined the Jesus movement. You're denying a part of who we are. And so we're no longer going to be. And that was severe because back then, who took care of elderly retired parents? Good Asian folks. Who took care of their children did, right? Their children did. Oh, you know, no, this, isn't, this isn't the U.S. government. You know, people get old. The government takes care of them, you know? What do we call that? Social security, right? Or otherwise, no money left for me when I get to be 60, right? Social security of the system that takes care of them, but nobody, the children take care of them. But imagine if your children said, you joined the Jesus movement, we have nothing to do with you. What happens when your husband died? Who would take care of it? Secondly, a lot of them, even if their children didn't cut ties with them, they are often hundreds and thousands of miles away from where their children are. So you have this group of literally hundreds, maybe even thousands of Grecian widows that are a part of this church with no children to care for them, no government subsidies, nothing. Who would take care of them? The church would take care of them. But guess what was happening? The very people who are most in need were being overlooked by who? By who? The church. The church. The very people that needed the most help were being overlooked by the church. A social injustice was happening inside the early church. You know what I love about this, though? And we're going to look at why this was happening, why they were being overlooked. I love the fact that they spoke up. I love the fact that they spoke. What do I mean? I love the fact that they saw a group of people that were being overlooked. And what did they do? They spoke up and addressed the need to the larger church of the leadership. Listen, let me just. This is, by the way, part of where we're going today, okay? This is part of where we're going. You need to know this. <laughs> On Sundays after church uh, and other times, uh, I'll, get these, I'll get these occasions where, where somebody will come up and they're just crying and, and they're just bawling their eyes out and they'll say something like this. They'll say something like, you know, Peter, it's been months and years since I walked away from the church. And a friend invited me and I'm here and, I, and I'm just, I can't believe how amazing this place is and how God has spoken to me. And I just, I just, I just am so thankful. And, and you know, they're, they're talking and I don't want to be mean, but they're talking. And then you know what's going through my head? As I'm listening, going through my head, I'm going, if you only knew how jacked up we really are. <laughs> Go through my eyes. If you only knew, man, we are just a bunch of messed up sinners saved by the grace of God. 
we are far from perfect, you know, and they're crying their eyes out, and I'm going, there, there, inside, I'm going, I hope you don't come to realize that we are just a bunch of, you know, those thoughts. So, by the way, if you come up after the service, you're like, that's not what I'm going to be thinking. I'm just saying, okay? That's, so as these people come, and, and, here, and listen, here's what happens. Here's what happens. Sure, sure enough, sure enough, these people will get involved in the church, and then they will realize, they will realize that our church, we are not perfect. Our church, we've got issues, all of a sudden, some of you are sleeping and you're all awake now. Yes, we have issues, right? Our church is full of them. And when these people encounter that, they respond in one of two ways. Some people respond in a godly way that we see here. And you know what they do? They come to me, they come to leadership and saying, there are folks in our church that are being overlooked. There are needs that are not being met. There are things that we need to do better, church. There are things. And humbly, not in a nasty email, and gently, not accusatory judging you because you only know your story and I don't know anybody else's. They come and they're just as, and you know what happens? They experience healing, we experience healing, and we're better for it. That's how some people respond. And I have a phenomenal story of, of, of how this happened recently and how it's led to some amazing healing in our church. But there are other people who respond this way. They will gossip. They will slander. They will judge. They will give zero grace. And I just want to say gently, how does that help anybody? How, how does you, I told you it was going to be kind of tough this morning. How does that, by the way, if you're not, if you're not a Christian or you're just visiting our church, this is, we're, we're, this is our church family sitting around a kitchen table. How does that help anybody? How does that uh, how does that help anybody if you're sitting there with a friend and you just, you're just railing on the church? How does that help you? How does that help them? How does that help anybody if that's the route that we choose? Can you do me a favor? Can you do the body of Christ a favor? Remember? Big old mouth, freak of nature. Can you do me a favor? If you have a friend that's doing that, you know somebody doing that, can you say to that person, shut up. Do the right thing, the Jesus thing. Go to the people. Go to the people. Be reconciled. Go to the people and address the issues. Don't sit there and do the very destructive thing that the church in America is so accustomed to. Is it okay for me to say that? We're not perfect. We're so... You, you, oh, if you only knew. If you only knew. We have blinders on, you guys. Okay, so let me just go on, okay? So let me have a phenomenal story. Of, and we're going to see a video, okay? Let's see a video. I'm going to set this video up, and, and then I'll tell you. So here's the... So our church, we are overlooking a major need, okay? Stop, not, don't... Our, our church is overlooking a major need, Okay? Right now, here's what I mean by that. Here's what I mean by that. Because of the economy, do you know that there are folks in our church who've lost jobs? There are families in our church who've lost jobs. Check this out. There's one family, Bruce and Dana Robertson's, and, and you're going to hear their story. Bruce is a carpenter. He lost a job with the company that he works with. They have two kids. Their older daughter needs surgeries twice a year to maintain her vocal cords to function. Medical bills. I had no idea. Majority of our church had no idea. This is a fairly large church. The community group knew. 
And a couple of their friends knew. And you know what these friends did? They spoke up. They came to us and said, how are we as a church going to care for those in our church that we don't even know their needs? This is their story, and I'm going to tell you exactly what happened as a result of this. Check this out. Well, we've been coming to New Community for two and a half years. Uh, we've lived in the Albany Park neighborhood for nine. His family's in Minnesota, and my family's in southern Illinois. So we are definitely looking for a family here in Chicago. I've been in construction for about 15 years, and uh, my current job I've been in for about two and a half years. Things have been getting have been progressively getting difficult as far as my company being able to sign work uh, for the last year, I'd say. My boss laid me off on January 23rd and uh, came home that weekend and, you know, we just, we just started praying because uh, I knew that I wasn't going to have any work the next Monday and uh, immediately connected with uh, my small group. They were talking about what they could do for us, not just to pray. And some of them even said, we don't have much money, but we have extra, you know, and if you need it, we'll give it to you. For the last couple of years, um, I had playdates with different moms in the church, and um, so I'd become friends with some of them in particular. And um, we found out that Bruce lost his job the day before I had a playdate schedule with Andrea. And I was really tempted not to go to call off because we were in such shock. But I, I went anyway, and um, I told her about what had happened. You know, I didn't realize what was happening, that she went to a congregational business meeting, I think, and was talking about our situation and uh, trying to get help for us. Within a couple of weeks of, of all this happening, we started getting gift cards and money from people. Um, sometimes it was people we knew, but a lot of it was anonymous. It was very humbling, you know, to realize that not only friends, you know, but people we didn't even know at church were responding to our need. The reality is that uh, we're not alone. Even though we don't have uh, a lot of family anywhere close by, to have people that that know us and care about us is huge in the midst of you know, uncertainty. It's really uncomfortable to be able to be weak in front of other people. In the small group we've been talking about um, being more real and being more honest. There's actually been, uh, there's actually been some, some real deep uh, and difficult honesty that lately that just has been uh, coming up and very powerful. Um, and so it's part of, you know, Part of what has given us, uh, I guess, the ability to, to talk about this now and to be able to be weak uh, in front of others. God has just shown me that not only, oh yeah, you know, He knows what's going on, but no, He really knows what we need. Because right when we needed money, right when we needed to pay a bill, right when we ran out of diapers, um, we'd have a Target gift card show up in the mail, or we'd have um, money handed to us. So it was... It was very, it was a very intimate kind of um, provision and very tangible. We've been talking about community. We've been talking about all the ways that, that God can bless us through that. It's never going to get beyond 
conversation until we actually, uh, when we're in a situation where we're uncomfortable or we're hurting, uh, to 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 do the thing that's uncomfortable because we we are loved and we are accepted and uh, and it is it's turning out that this is a safe place to be vulnerable and to be weak. What are the Psalms? What are the Psalms? What are there's you know texts in the in the minor prophets and things and these guys are crying out and some of the things that they say you know you read it and you're like whoa you know this guy is really intense but it's because he's in the middle of it and he's talking honestly about it. Anybody encouraged by that? You, you know, you know what, what's encouraging me about that, and, and I think we need to do more of. So, so often, we, uh, we, we love in the church celebrating major victories. You know, we have testimonies and videos of people who are like, I was struggling, and God came through and showed me, and oh, I praise God. Or somebody says, I was struggling with major addiction, and I'm free from that addiction. And I'm, you know what we need more of? We need more honest Christians to go up and say, I'm still struggling, but God is with me. Is that anybody's testimony this morning? You know, I'm still struggling, man, but God is with me. That's my testimony. That's Bruce's testimony. Still don't know how we're going to pay our bills and jobs, but God is with me. Okay, so, <laughs> so here's, here's what happened, right? So, so two people, Andrea and Mara, they, they told me not to say their names. I'm going to tell their names, okay? These are two moms. <laughs> Okay, Andrea Mara in our church. Guess what they did? They became the persistent widow in the scripture. You know, you know what I'm talking about? You know what they did? They called, they emailed, they texted, then then they called some more, emailed it. I mean, they literally said, it is going to be our mission to make sure that this family and other families in our church are taken care of. So they show up to our annual business meeting. Business meeting, hello. We talk about business at business meetings, right? Andrea's walking around. People are going, how are you doing, Andrea? Her response, do you know the Robertsons? How are you? No, how are you doing? I don't know. No, no. Do you know the Robertsons? Why? Because there's this family. Boom. She talked to like 50 people at this annual business meeting. Just 50 people. Then the word gets out, right? The word spreads. And people start giving generously. We wouldn't have known. But she didn't stop there. You know what she did? Then she had the audacity. <laughs> To say, this church as a whole needs to do better. What? Oh, yeah. We have this small benevolence fund set aside, Peter, to help people, but that's not good enough. It's, some, it's too small. So we need to actively let the congregation know. So she said this. How about once a month we collect a special offering and we'll set it aside. And we're not going to touch it. We're just going to set it aside. And we are going to distribute that to families like the Robertsons who need groceries, money, to, to tie them over. And I said, well, who's going to take care of this ministry? Because we're tapped. They said, we will do it. Actions of two women in our church has moved our entire church to we look at our budget and saying, what can we do to care for people in our church who may not have a voice? Can we celebrate that? Can you clap? Can you celebrate that? It's great news. It's great news. It's great news. And the best of it all, and the best of it all is that it didn't come from me. It didn't come from the leadership of the staff. It came from two people in our church who love this church enough to say, we need to care for our people better. 
Do you know why that's so encouraging? Because the entire book of Acts is we've been talking about. The one word that appears over and over again in the book of Acts is the word all. A-L-L. All. All the disciples were together and shared everything they had. All the disciples. Over and over again. Why? Luke is saying movement like this was a movement of everyone. Not just a few. Some people say that most churches, 20%, you have heard of 20, 80? 20% of the people do 80% of the work. Most churches are either more like 1090 or, or, or 595. Tiny percentage of people do all the work in the church. And what Luke is saying is this was a movement of all. And as a result, they conquered the Roman Empire. Let me ask you something. Let me ask you something. Come on. How are you joining in? How are you jumping in? Are you merely consuming? Are you merely spectating? How are you joining this movement of God? We can't do this without you. Do you get that? We can't do this without you. This movement, this, this cause needs every person to be a part of it. What can you do? You can do a lot. What can you do? What can you do? How can God use you? How can God use you? Uh, okay. Let's get to the heart of what was going on, okay? This is a little difficult. Let's get to the heart of what was going on. Why was this happening? Here's what was happening. For the first time, the church is a multicultural church. For the first time, the church has brought people from different cultural backgrounds. And, and can I just confess something? I don't like to think of the apostles as imperfect people. Anybody else? You know? I don't like to think of them as flawed human beings. And then, of course, I read this passage and I go, I need to get over that. Because guess who the apostles were? They were still struggling with ethnocentrism, racism. And here was the issue. And we'll be as clear as possible. Here's a group of people, the Hebraic Jews, apostles, who were the ones in positions of power and influence. All the money, all the resources. They had the power and influence to do whatever they wanted to do. Here's a group of Grecian widows. Culturally the minority. Culturally the ones without power and influence in the church. The apostles, I think, had the right intentions. Their character wasn't the issue. But here's the thing. When you're the dominant culture and you're positions of authority, positions of power, you think everything is going great, right? Can we be honest? I, I think our culture, our, our country is kind of funny like that with the elections. Race issue? What race issue? That's because you're part of the dominant culture and the system works for you. Hello? Amen? Anybody? Anybody? <laughs> I don't want to get, you know, it's true, come on. Positions of power, people dominant authority, you know, whether it be ethnic, racial, whether it be socioeconomic, the ones that are in positions of power normally look around and go, our needs are being taken care of, our needs are being met. Problem? What problem? And the Christian widows are going, our problem. We're not getting food. We're not getting distribution of the funds that are necessary for us to have sustenance. This church is wrestling with something that it will continue to wrestle with. The status of the ethnic minority, the cultural minority in the church, and what will be the relative status within this movement? Will they continue to be marginalized? Will they continue to be people without a voice? Or would they, because of something the apostles do, be raised to leadership and powers of influence? Now, you guys, before we go there, look at verse uh, verse 2. Holy cow, we're in verse 2 already. 
<laughs> it, it moves very quickly from here, I promise. Okay, hang in there. It moves very quickly. Okay. So the 12 gather all the disciples together and said, and you're going, oh my gosh, freaking, he took that like 50 minutes on one verse. Okay, so 12 gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers, choose seven men among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom and we will turn this responsibility over to them and we'll give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. Do you know what I love? Do you know what I love about this? And apparently this struck a huge chord with the early early service. The apostles and the leadership listened. The ones in power, the ones in power and influence authority, they 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 they, they listened. One of the most vital characteristic attributes, qualities of leaders and good leaders. And you know what? If you're sitting there going, I'm not a leader in the church. You're a leader. Are you a husband? Are you a husband? You're a leader in your home. All of us are in some sort of leadership. And, and, and good, powerful principle of leadership is that you listen. You listen well. Not just the physical posture of letting sound waves go in one ear out the other. No, you listen. Do you know why this morning was so struck, you know, so... I had like two people with like coming up and saying, thank you, Pastor Peter, for sharing that. Just, and you know why they were saying that? I am not a very good listener. I suck at it. I stink at it. I'm really bad. When somebody comes and says, can I give you some constructive criticism? I only hear criticism. I don't go, constructive? That's an oxymoron. How can criticism ever be constructive? That doesn't make no sense to me. Constructive criticism. You go on with your constructive criticism. So when people come, I'm serious. When somebody comes and wants to say something about the church, it's like they're attacking my kids, right? I'm going. And you know what, confession time, I don't listen well. And can I just be honest here? I've heard a lot of people in our church because I haven't listened well, people. And for some people in the morning church, it was like healing. It was like balm for them. The reason why they're crying is they're literally saying, yeah, you do suck at listening, so thank you for admitting that. I'm like, gee. Your pastor is making an admission to you because I need your prayers. I don't listen well. And a lot of, I think what ails our church is, and me and the reflects of our leadership too, we don't listen very well, you know? So people are afraid to come and talk to us because they know, you know, I'm going to be like, you know, my whole Korean blood starts boiling in me and I start getting big eyed, as big as my eyes can get, you know, and go... You know, just start doing that, and automatically they go, oh, okay, I'll forget about it. You know, people walk away, and you know what's happening? Apparently, there's not a safe environment in our church for people to say, I'm hurting. And we need the church to do better. Is that okay that your pastor is admitting to you that I'm not a very good listener? And please, don't go ask my wife to confirm is he really bad at listening? Because she'll say, were you not listening this morning? Of course, he's bad at listening. I'm just telling you right now, and I need your prayers. This whole moment for me, and I'll get it, whole moment for me was possible because the apostles, say with me, they what? They, they listen. Do you know the amount of healing? And I wasn't even sharing this this morning. I'm just going to just, just, just kind of freestyle. 
It just occurred to me, do you know how much healing can come from somebody that you don't get along with if they just simply know that you're listening to them? Do you know the kinds of healing that a marriage can experience if your spouses just knew, oh my gosh, I actually feel like he's listening. You don't even have to agree at this point. It's going to take a miracle of God, but at this point, you're listening. They listened. They listened. Oh. What do they do to begin the process of conflict resolution in this church? The apostles called a congregational business meeting. And how many people showed up? Like our church. 600 people in attendance. How many people at the congregational business meeting? Oh, about 30. Why? It's a waste of my time. Not a lot of people here. I doubt the 25,000, you know, there are a handful of people in the apostles. And what did they do? They did two things. They said, one, they're not going to rush in to do the work themselves. They said, we're going to delegate. And secondly, not only are we going to delegate, they said, we're going to delegate to a group of people who are being marginalized and overlooked, and we're going to empower them. Did you catch that? We're going to empower them. We're going to give them authority. We're going to give them positions of power. Verse 5. So this proposal pleased the whole group. I just, it just occurred to me, what if it didn't please the whole group? I wonder what would have happened, right? They were like, that's not good enough. Please the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith, and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parnabas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. So they presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. Who they choose for leadership? A couple dimensions, spiritual maturity. It wasn't a popularity contest. Didn't you hate that in youth group? I hated that in youth group. Some of you grew up in youth group, a youth pastor. Who do you want to be a youth group leader? Him or her. Why? They're popular. Churches are so immature like that. What about, do they love Jesus? Do they love Jesus, really? Are they committed to him? This is the apostles. that They're like, no, no, no. Do they love Jesus? We don't care who they are. Do they love Jesus? Are they committed to him? Spiritual maturity. Second thing that they chose, and there was a little insight about Stephen, but I'm going to go ahead. Second thing they chose, and more importantly for our context, that they chose leaders who are culturally like the people who are being overlooked. And as a result, we're going to be intuitively sensitive they chose people who were going to be intuitively sensitive to the needs of the people that was being overlooked. Why is that principle important for them? Why is it important for us today? There are times in our church on a Sunday after pastors or other older folks, let's just say, who are visiting with their children will come up afterwards and they'll ask me this question that throws me off. They'll go, how is it there's so many young people in your church? How is there so many 20, 30-somethings in your church? What's your strategy? And it catches me off guard because I go, And they're kind of taken aback when I tell them, I go, I don't really have a strategy. I never, like, thought about it. I, how do I reach young people? How do I reach 20, 30-something? I, I I, why? Because it's the world that I live. See, your fears are my fears. And please, if you're sitting there going, dude, you're not my age. <laughs> you need to chill out. I'm slightly older than you, but you need to chill out, okay? Just go along with the analogy. I'm trying really hard here. Give me a break, okay? No, in all seriousness, when people ask me that, I go, I know innately what their fears are. Really? How do you know what their fears are? That's my fears. I know innately what their insecurities are. I know innately the idols and gods that they're tempted to worship. Why? I don't have to read a book. Those are the same idols, gods I'm tempted to worship. What did the apostles do? They said, who can we empower in leadership that would intuitively and innately know the needs that are being overlooked? And how can we empower them? 
So who do they choose? Seven Hellenists. One of them, not even a Jew. He was a convert to Judaism. The very people that were being overlooked. The very people that you don't have to ask. So, can you relate to them? Of course I can relate to them. And they empowered them. If you think this is like, well, you know, that's just what everybody does. Think of what it meant for the apostles. For the first time, they're faced with decision. Relinquishing power and authority to a group of people who would take the church far beyond Jerusalem. But doing that meant that they would be significantly in charge of a small number of people and the finances, perhaps not even over it at all. And yet these apostles did the right thing by empowering these leaders. As a result, two people that are saved or two people that are brought to leadership, Philip, we'll see him in Acts 8, becomes the evangelist that takes the gospel to Samaria. He fulfills Acts 1.8. Stephen, first martyr in the church, takes the gospel, breaks into the Gentile world as a result of persecution. Two people in the minority overlooked, nobody would have seen as a result of this need, were empowered by the leaders as a result of the gospel. So, um, okay, um, you all sitting there going, okay, well, uh, that's, that's nice and, and, you know, that's a little interesting cultural insight and, and, and great, but uh, what, what, what does that have anything to do with me? What does have to do with our church? Let me tell you what it means. And if you care even an iota about this church and the mission of God, um, you care about this. To be completely honest with you guys, when I was initially starting to study this passage, I felt pretty good about myself. Principle. Well, ethnic diversity in leadership. I looked at our church leadership. Check. (laughs) Raising up indigenous leaders. Oh, Bronzeville Church Plant, we're planting this church. That's what we're doing. We're trying to raise up indigenous leaders. I'm going to Colombia in a month. We're trying to plant the church in Colombia in, in about two years or so, okay? And we're working right now with young people from Colombia, indigenous leaders again, right? Check, 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 check. You know? Church isn't as diverse as we want it to be, but boy, God is at work. And I'm going, great. God, amazing. Well, that was a nice lesson for us in Acts 6. Let's move on. And then I got this email. from a leader in our church. And it was one of those emails, you guys, that was going to put to test whether I really mean what I preach because I had a choice to listen or to blow her off. I'm going to read this email and I'm going to actually tell you exactly what I was thinking and feeling as I was reading the email because this is how it applies to us. Overall, she says, the strategic plans look great. Oh, that's good. Yeah, all right. Good, good, good. Good Good work. Good, encouraging, that's good. Okay. Uh, but my main concern is around the issue of leadership development and recruitment. More specifically, I did not see any initiative to intentionally develop indigenous leaders. And by now, computer is pushed away. I'm sitting, breathing silently, like... I want to I, 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 I read the rest of this. We're doing good. We're doing well. We're, we're moving. What? We're a diverse church. We've got diverse ethnic leadership. What's, what's... And then the Holy Spirit goes, shut your mouth and read the email. Developing urban churches that live incarnationally requires indigenous leadership to interact in a reciprocal relationship with the community. If everyone in places of power are not from the community, 
And our congregation is overwhelmingly not indigenous. That is, we're not from Logan Square or the other places we've moved here. Then we send the wrong message to coming to partner with this community. And from the strategic plans, our interaction seems to be we're just serving and helping them, but how are we receiving from the community? And by now, you guys, I'm going, I'm depressed. By now, I'm going, because she's hitting on something that is always, always on my mind. She says, recently I met with the two community leaders who have spent their whole life here. They're also highly bicultural and work to build bridges between congregations like ours who are relocators and the community gatekeepers. In my meetings with both of them, a woman in her 40s and a man in his 30s, they expressed a growing weariness with churches like ours, which I'm going, now I'm getting weary, who come in with resources, people, and lots of great intentions, but from their perspective, they show no signs of developing indigenous leaders. And as she spoke of a church that is similar to ours, this is what she said. It's great that they have racial diversity of their staff team, but it's not socioeconomically diverse. And then the hammer dropped. And none of the staff actually come from this community or know people in the community. I mean, even me. This woman that wrote, I went to Harvard for crying out loud. So I've had to work extra hard to remind people here that I'm on their side. And the community is skeptical and protective because they have not been invited to lead and guide. They're the ones who are being helped. And then she had the audacity to like preach my sermon for me. She starts going off on like Acts 6, right? And this is what she says. So as I was reading Acts 6, well, thank you very much. It reminded me. The caring for the poor, this is very important. Caring for the poor is not feeding them, but it's inviting them and empowering them to help themselves. The Jewish Christians and the apostles had no clue that there was an injustice being suffered by the Grecian Christians. Perhaps it's because they lived so detached from one another that they were oblivious to their pain. The Grecian, the Grecian Christians spoke for themselves. They didn't need us to be their voice. They have a voice. They just needed to be given positions where they can speak up. You might not care one iota about our church. And you may sit here and go, oh, this is the most irrelevant sermon for me. Let me tell you why this is heavy on my heart. I look at our beautiful, wonderful congregation that I love. And we are socioeconomically middle, upper middle class college-educated people in a community with thousands of people who have never gone to college and are working class at best. And the question that I get posed is, can we be an alternate city, a true kingdom that reflects what God is doing if we sit content with the fact that we have racial and ethnic diversity? But it's nothing about crossing the class barriers, socioeconomic barriers. Can we be a witness to this city for whom this is unheard of? That, yeah, in that church, the rich and the poor worship together genuinely. Those who went to college, PhDs, as well as those who never even graduated high school, worship together. Now, encouragement, there are some people in our church who are just doing this on their own. And I just need to affirm you, like, you're an amazing asset and gift to our church. 
I thank God for you. Matter of fact, you're the one that's a knowing voice in my ear. What about this other diversity? To which all along I'm like, I don't want to hear it. Why? I'll be honest with you guys. When I read this email and as I thought about our church moving forward in this journey of being reconciled this way and being Christ's community, Christ's kingdom, you know what I immediately thought? I thought, God, that's inconvenient. God, that's, that's, uh, that's, that's, that's very uncomfortable. To which it's almost like the Holy Spirit comes. If you're on Vision Sunday, the Holy Spirit goes, since when did I call you too comfortable? Since when did I call you too convenient? I didn't call you to comfort. I didn't call you to convenience. I called you into the kingdom. Amen? Let me tell you something. And this is another reason somebody came up to me and said, I'm so blessed today. Well, I said, why? Because, because you just messed up. Thank you. And she said, let me clarify. She's like, you stood up there, Peter, and said, you don't know what you're doing. So let me be clear. In this regard, I don't know what I'm doing. How are we going to raise up indigenous leaders? How are we going to get them? Your pastor is looking at you today and going, I have no freaking clue. Well, but how are we going to move this forward? I'll tell you how we're going to move forward. I'm going to listen a lot to you, and I'm going to ask the entire church to say, church, what can we do? Is that okay? Because I want the city of Chicago to look at our church and go, if not for the power of God, that's not possible. Do you want that too? I don't know how we're going to raise up indigenous leaders. I don't know how we're going to raise up folks so that our leadership team is diverse, not just ethnically and racially, but in every way so that we reflect the kingdom of God. But if there's one thing that the resurrection of Jesus shows us, it's that he has made the impossible possible. And I'm not going to give up. You're going to give up? I'm not going to give up. I feel helpless right now. And I go, God, how do we do this? I'm going to need you. We're going to need each other. Amen? You guys, as we end, uh, I'm going to end with verse 7, the gospel. Is it okay if I end with the gospel of Jesus Christ? Is it okay? Is it okay if I talk about Jesus? Is it okay? Is it okay if I talk about the gospel? Because, because you need to. <laughs> Tom, I'm so thankful for you, man. I'm so thankful for you. Because when I get really discouraged, because I get blank stares or really angry stares, I just look over to you and I see Tom. <laughs> so the word of God spread. As a result of the hard decisions they made, as a result of what they did, verse 7, so the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly and a large number of priests. Did you catch that? Hey. A large number of priests came obedient to faith. Now, you're going, okay, explain that. In Jerusalem at this time, there are 8,000 priests and 10,000 Levites. There are two classes of priests in Jerusalem at this time. There were the ruling class, the high priests, and the Sadducees, and then the rest of them. These guys were dirt poor. These guys worked in the temple one month out of the year, 11 months out of the year. They needed to find a job. In other words, what we're seeing here by Luke is there was a massive conversion of some of the poorest of the poor. Why? Oh. Wow. That was pretty good, Thaddeus. <laughs> wow. Um, don't make me cry. Uh, I cry because 
I'm talking about the cross. Why, 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 why? What does this show us? And I need to end with the cross because I've talked about some heavy, hard things today. I need to end with the cross because I need to just some of you guys. This has been a fact of history throughout, throughout human history when you're talking about Christianity. Do you know that throughout history we've seen that the people that were most drawn to the gospel were the poor, were the marginalized, were the oppressed, were the weak? Consistently throughout history, when you see it, it's happening now in Logan Square, Chicago, throughout the rest of the world. There's massive revival movement amongst the poorest of the poor. Why? We sometimes erroneously think it's because they're uneducated, they're ignorant. Of course, they're going to believe this supernatural. You know why the poor were drawn to the gospel? What's at the center of the gospel of Jesus Christ? The, the, the center of the gospel of Jesus Christ says that Jesus Christ, the son of God, came not in strength. He didn't come in strength like all the other religious leaders and said, be strong, be like me, do the teaching, obey the teaching, and then you can be saved. He didn't come like that. He came in weakness. And he said, listen, he said, you are so weak, you are so broken, you are so marginalized, you are so helpless that you can't be good enough, you can't be moral enough, you can't be righteous enough to earn salvation on your own. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to live the life you should have lived, and I'm going to die the death you should have died. And faith in me and dependence on my Father, salvation is yours. You know what that means? That means that the people that will be drawn to the gospel are those who have morally failed the prostitutes, sex collectors. It's the people who look at themselves and go, I'm not very moral, God. I'm not, I'm immoral, frankly. I got all kinds of stuff going on. And the gospel comes along and says, perfect, it's for you. Gospel comes and says to somebody, God, I'm so weak. I don't have the means. I don't have the resources. I need to depend on something every day even just to eat. And the gospel comes along and says, perfect. The gospel is for you. So the gospel is great news. If you're sitting here today and you're jacked up morally, the gospel is today. If you don't think you're very righteous, the gospel is good today. If you think you're too weak and too helpless and you need the help of God. I want anybody? Because the gospel comes along and says, it's for you. It's for you. It's a massive conversion of priests in Jerusalem. It's ridiculous to me when somebody comes and says, oh, Jesus was this nice man teacher who lived a good life, said to everybody, everybody get along. Can we just get along and love the poor and just kind of, can we just do that? Because if you do that, as someone said, you're making a mockery out of history because why would anybody want to kill Mr. Rogers? C.S. Lewis says, God has not left that an option for us. He says, Jesus claimed to be God. So he's either a liar, he's either a lunatic, or he is Lord. You choose. You choose. Bow your heads with me. And let me just say this. If you're uh, someone who's spiritually just kind of searching and seeking, you don't consider yourself a Christian, and, 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 and what I said towards the end there resonated with you in, in some way, will you come up and talk to me after the service? I would love to just, just talk to you and pray with you, okay? Church, I'm going to ask you to do something right now. Can you all stand with me? And, 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 and I'm going to ask you to pray. I'm going to ask you to pray actually specifically for me. And as, and as a result, representative of leadership. I need, I need you to pray for, uh, before we sing this last song and close, I need you to pray for me. I need you to pray for our leadership. And church, people of God, I need you to pray because, because this next movement of our church to be this, 
embodiment of the kingdom, we can't do this on our own. We, we're not smart enough. We're not resourceful enough. We, we need the power of the Holy Spirit at work. So perhaps you're someone who regularly prays for me and the church leadership or someone who never has. I'm asking you to pray. Will you just spend the next few moments just doing that before we sing this last song? Will you just pray for me? Will you just pray for our church leadership that God would give us wisdom, God would give us discernment, God, God would show us how we can better embody the kingdom and reflect it as we cross these massive barriers, not just race, ethnicity, but class, education, and every other way. Please pray for us. I covet your prayer. Let's pray together. Jesus. 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 God, we need your help. We are your church. This is your people. Calling that you have given us, God, to be this radically alternate city. We desperately, utterly need you. Help us, God. Lead us, God. Guide us, God. And for every person here as they walk out, Father, by the power of your Holy Spirit, will you speak to them about how they can join in on this movement of all and what that would mean for them. Holy Spirit of God, we thank you for what you've already done and we look forward to what you will do. As you leave this place, people of God, children of God, the power of the Holy Spirit who lives inside of you goes with you. The unconditional love of your heavenly Father is your strength. You were made to walk and not faint, to run and not be wary. Live your life full tilt for his kingdom and for his purposes. May the grace, peace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you from now and forevermore. And all of God's people said, amen. Have a great week, you guys. See you back here next Sunday.